Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson. And I'm Ian Morris. And welcome back. And thank you for bearing with us on our little hiatus, our little break there. Um, Hopefully, one of the things that people listening will notice, and this is particularly important if you're wearing good headphones or nice speakers or in a quiet environment, Hopefully you will notice that this, my voice, sounds significantly better than it has done, certainly over the past few weeks, but possibly every show ever, because I'm now in my new studio, which I've built and finished at home. I'm extremely excited about it. I think this is the most excited I've been about a room since I was about six years old and my mum gave me Snatch the Dog wallpaper and matching, um, matching bed sheets for my captain's bed. I think that's about, and that's knocking on, you know, 25 years ago. That's the level <laughs> of, of excitement I have. And you're that this, excited about this. For this room. I've yeah. seen it. I've seen it, dear listener, in photos only. And it is amazing. It's a it's a proper little workspace, isn't it? It's a little, yeah, it is. Um, so expect the show now to continue as planned. This is episode 58 and very excited to be back here. Um, I'm going to do a little video tour uh, at some point of the studio and who knows, maybe we'll end up doing some stuff on video in the future. But um, for the time being, I have one thing to do, which is to thank my other half, Kate, who uh, has been... Done all the work. Well, I've done all the researching how to (laughs) turn a room into a dedicated recording studio. You sat at the desk, basically. I did a lot of work researching how to, you know, treat a room, even to the extent of measuring and doing maths um, and and a variety of other things and tracking sound reflections and all this kind of thing. But Kate did get very, very good with a drill and uh, did a lot of drilling and a lot of uh, stuff. So many thanks. You can you can give her thanks as well at Kate Dreyer 13. I did promise I would give her a plug because I couldn't have done it without her. But it's now time for the news. And we're going to start, as we often do, uh, at least so it seems this year, by talking about the Queen. The Queen gave a speech uh, a few days ago, and one of the items that was uh, particularly notable in the speech was technology. And we wanted to touch on this a little bit, because following the Queen's speech, the government said it plans a digital economy bill that would make Cameron's promise, and it is a promise, to give everyone in Britain at least... 10 megabits per second internet connection it will make that law this bill will make that law now this is going to cover about a million additional houses uh, which includes my mum includes many mums i know who don't live in london uh, being able to get access to fast much much faster broadband you know some people out in the sticks are limited to you know sub one megabits per second it is an exercise in tolerance to try and do anything even remotely resembling having a good time using internet um, at some of these houses. Um, and Cameron had said that this would happen, and now this is the the, the bill that's hopefully going to make this happen. Ian, thoughts? Sounds like a load of old rubbish to me, because um, I actually had an argument with Ed Vasey 
um, <laughs> who is the Minister of State for Culture and the Digital Economy. And um, he said, um, well, here's his, here's his tweet. Um, let me read it to you. Um, we have committed to introducing broadband universal service obligations so nobody is left behind. Speeds of 10 megabits per second remain our target. And then I wrote something, well, I, I wrote, uh, if, if, uh, if, if you needed proof uh, that the government is asleep at the wheel, 10 megabits as a target for the minimum speed is it. Um, now, obviously, as a result of this, he retweeted my tweet in a, you know, and, and said a complete lack of understanding of the policy or achievements so far. Um, which is unusual for a minister. I mean, why would you retweet something that was, you know, I mean, it just seems odd. Um, but anyway, that aside, that what came out of that discussion was that people who are in the sticks um, are actually being treated incredibly badly. And this policy isn't really working for them because a lot of it is tied to um, the expectation that people will use satellite broadband. Um, and that's fine. But of course, satellite broadband isn't without its faults. You know, there are issues with using it. It isn't quite as good as normal broadband. Um, it's also quite expensive. There's well, it's actually it's very expensive. Yes, and I'm... and and it's also worth pointing out that all broadband is not equal. And and as I'm sure you're probably going to point out, um, one of the big flaws with satellite communication is that the latency is CAC, which yes. makes communication written real time quite challenging. Which I assume is what quite a lot of people out in the middle of nowhere where their nearest friend is you know 100 miles away or i don't know what the sticks are like uh i assume that's about the distance between the average friend it makes communicating with them potentially difficult and don't get me started on playing elder scrolls online well in those environments gaming because... i can assure you on a on a satellite broadband connection is not going to happen because no. what you're looking at is even if because usually satellite broadband there's two two i mean satellite broadband has improved enormously um there is um you can now do upstream on it, but if you think about it, what you're you're do, what you're doing is when you're sending a signal to a satellite, you're sending it into space, and then it has to come back. So, essentially, arguably, your latency is always going to be twice as bad, at least, as anyone else's, and that's if you assume that the latency to a satellite is you know as good as it would be a ping to a, a gaming server, which may or may not be in your country, but is almost certainly geographically quite close to you. Um, and of course, gaming is not probably the main focus of policies like this, because obviously it's very important to get people online. So, you know, I objected to two things. I object to the idea that the that they're saying that 10 megabits per second is acceptable as a as a, as, a, as an entry level speed. I mean, I suppose you could argue it is, but I think that we, we should be setting our sights way higher than this. And to be honest, if you can deliver 10 megabits per second, you could probably deliver a lot more. Um, I think personally i don't think any anything near enough has been done to make this affordable for people the telegraph ran a story saying that people who were um the government was now saying that some people just didn't want broadband and that they weren't going to um offer them the service because they just wouldn't take it um and and, and of course that means people are getting caught up in wanting broadband and not having it and of course the government will only mandate a certain amount of money so if your bill comes in so for example bt has to give you a line as long as the cost isn't above three thousand pounds or something like that but of course in some rural communities putting broadband to them would cost way in excess of that and even divided up amongst the community it may be that you end up having to you'd you'd have to put your own contributions in and of course some people just simply can't afford that or 
could afford it, but don't want to because it's just not a priority. And well, this is the interesting thing that you've raised is that part of the um, the deal here that the government has said that some people living in really remote areas might have to cover the cost of installing the networking, which to me sounds like a spin on basically saying everyone should have access to 10 megabits per second internet. All you have to do, if you don't already qualify, is pay money in order to qualify. And you could always have done that. There was always an option for you. I guess now it's subsidised and that's what makes it different. Yes, and and of course that will help. But, you know, why why is this, why has it come to this? Why are we, why why does the government not say to uh, EE3, Vodafone, O2, great, here are your 4G service licences. The condition of us giving you these licences for you to make huge amounts of money is that when we identify a rural area that's it, where it's really not practical to provide infrastructure, um, you know, via traditional means, then you will be responsible for paying for, um, you know, the mast and we'll give these people 4G because 4G is arguably the first wireless technology where home broadband sort of is workable on it. Um, I disagree, actually. I think 3G, depending on the the the... the, the where we drop the line on 3G could be fast enough. The latency on 4G is really good, for example, isn't it? Like the latency on 4G is noticeably better than it was on 3G. It can be. But the issue that you've you, you've, you've raised is that that requires then telecoms providers putting up the bill to put masts there. And they would argue that it's prohibitively expensive for them oh, to do that. That's tough. That's the license. That's what I'm saying. I say, you know, why why are the government farming all this money from um, five and four, four and 5G licenses when that money should be going into communities to get broadband. I think the government should be doing infrastructure, really. I think it's a really good way of using tax money. I mean, obviously, it has to be done efficiently. But really, what you want is investment in things that will make this country a competitor. Nationalising broadband infrastructure does strike me as being something that could come out with more problems and solutions. I'm not really suggesting... That it will be nationalised necessarily. But why are we thinking in, in this ridiculous box from 50 years ago when people don't need to go to offices? Or there might be... It, what it would do, I believe, and I genuinely believe this, is that um, high-speed rail, in the, in the way that it's been proposed in this country for that particular line, will serve a particular need. But there are lots of people across the country who are probably very happy with where they live and who feel that if they were just given access to very very fast broadband then they wouldn't need to move to a near city or commute they could have their business in their rural communities they could employ local people and that could be a huge boost and we could see you know all sorts of startups you know coming across the country because people have suddenly got access to broadband and i do not believe that it would cost anywhere near as much as a stupid railway that people are really arguing quite ferociously against well i want to close this conversation down a little bit because i think we've covered a a huge amount over this it's been very interesting but i did want to just pour a little bit of lukewarm water over this um (laughs) just to put all of these wonderful promises into context you know the idea of 10 megabits, megabits per second for all even if it's subsidized by the government whatever it is We've heard a lot of similar promises before, and I really think that this is the time, even if, as you say, we could get faster or expect faster than 10 megabits per second, 10 megabits per second is probably a realistic goal to give everybody because of wireless, because of um, whatever you want to use to extend network reach. But in 2009, we were promised 2 megabits per second broadband to every home by 2012. Then Cameron came in and scrapped that in 2010, or after his election in 2010, 
And then the new government said they would guarantee 90% of UK households would have access to 24 megabits per second or in excess, in fact, of 24 megabits per second by 2015, which I don't think happened. Um, no. And in fact, they then extended that to 2017. And there's a little bit of a sweetener. They said, well, we did say 90% by 2015. Now we're going to do 95% by 2017. So, you know, the, the the table at the Everlong Feast has been extended. Um, and then we get into this conversation of 10 megabits per second for basically 100% of the population. This is a moving target. I just think we need to put pressure on um, our lawmakers and on Cameron and on our government to at least make one of these things hit its target. Because as you say, <laughs> no matter how you do it, the benefits are there and it will make Britain more competitive and it will make us better people. Podcast at natelangson.com. That is where we welcome your thoughts and where we hope you will let us know maybe what would be a great solution for you or what solutions have you been exploring out in the middle of nowhere to get connected to the speedy internet that we are now allegedly promised. Podcast at natelangson.com. Ian, let's stay slightly on the subject of media, but on product rather than conduit. BBC had its charter renew. Um, uh, it was actually almost a couple of weeks ago now, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk about a couple of things uh, that came out of it uh, before we move on. I think most important to our listeners, at least, for better or for worse, is that from 2017, you will need to be paying the BBC licence fee in order to use the iPlayer. And given that it is technically easier to detect some an IP address's streaming content versus it's just receiving it through an you know an antenna through the air, um, it's probably going to be easier for people for, for the BBC or potentially Ofcom to crack down on people who are streaming and who aren't paying. And one of the ways around it that they may uh, they may introduce, this again was in the white paper that was released, is a login option where essentially it could be as simple as when you pay your license fee every year, every month, however you, you choose to pay it, you get an ID, a login, and you use that to log into the iPlayer and it would grant you access as long as that your as long as your license is up to date and paid in full. It would also, as an added benefit, and this is something that will be very relevant to the European Commission, which is trying to crack down on um, this problem of data sort of portability, is that it would allow you then to log into the iPlayer from other countries because it knows that you are the person who is from Britain, a British citizen, and pay the license fee. And therefore, if you're in Spain, if you're in Italy, wherever you are, you should be able to watch David Attenborough. I mean, really, the world should be watching David Attenborough, but certainly you should be entitled to if you have paid the license fee. Now, this to me, Ian, it seems to me to, to be honest i mean i mean i'm a fan of the of the of the license fee i think it is a the bbc is a great service i know you agree oh, dear, yes. um, and so this is slightly one-sided so we'll try and be as devil's advocate as we can be but you know the idea of of logging in to use the iplayer and having the iplayer access tied to a license fee seems at least in step with what everyone else does you pay a fee you get the access if you don't pay the access gets cut off yeah to me that feels very difficult to argue with yeah um it's logistically quite would... difficult to arrange though that's the problem it is but these things can be sold and there are some very smart people and third parties in the private sector who i'm sure would gladly step in for a modest 
extortionate fee uh, <laughs> to uh, to implement this. But in terms of making sure that people are paying, you know, if they value the iPlayer and the BB- and BBC content in general enough to 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 watch it on a regular basis to the extent that if they were blocked from it it would piss them off and then they they therefore see a, a more a, a bigger value in it then they'll do it surely yeah. i mean we saw this with piracy you know torrent traffic goes down when things like spotify came along people found the convenience and 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 things uh, an advantage and a reason to pay um i wonder if we'd see the same here um yeah i mean i maybe and i i mean I I know that this this was always going to come up and it was always going to be a problem. Like, you couldn't just keep it because people just eventually just get rid of their TVs and say they don't have a TV and they don't need a licence and then just watch everything on iPlayer. Um, and you can't really stop people from doing that. Um, so I think it's sensible to do this. I just... What you've got to remember about iPlayer is that there's already a huge amount of devices out there that support it. Um, and if you add in authentication and stuff like that, um, it might break a very large percentage of those applications that are already out and about. And that could be an issue. That is an extremely interesting point. I'd never thought of that. <clears throat> now, I don't... I mean, it, it may be that it's not a problem. Um, I know that the BBC moved over to um, uh, iPlayer is now almost completely HTML5, I believe, uh, which is why it always looks the same on every platform for the most part, because um, they've basically said, well, you don't get con- to control how it looks. We do that. But, you know, if you want to build an app, it's dead easy. And so everyone does it because, of course, iPlayer is just amazing. Um, and we're very lucky in this country because actually, I, I, like with all BBC services, it raises the bar for everything. But I do wonder, especially with older pro- products, maybe, um, what will happen to those people? Um, I'm sure there's a way around it. Like you say, there's very smart people around. But it would uh, it would give me some worry. And I'm sure there's a way of doing it in HTML5, but I'm not a coder, so I don't know. But it's just something to be aware of. And it's one of the other things that, you know, you, it's easy to say, hey, we want to make sure that everyone's paying this licence fee. But I don't see how you do that without just mandating that every household pays it well it'll be interesting to see how that's implemented and i agree i mean one of the things about the iplay that i always found fascinating even when it launched is that it'd be supported on relatively old nokia symbian devices and little handheld media players um yeah and there's because... a that's a huge infrastructure behind that as well i think because massive I th- they, they encode things i mean when you when you transmit a program at the BBC, obviously it goes to a a, a part of the com- company. It's run by a third party these days, obviously, um, and they ingest it and encode it for all these target platforms. It's really quite fascinating. Um, and I can tell you something: if uh, if you would like to find out more about this, if you do a Google search for iPlayer Uncovered CNET, you'll find a fascinating feature written by um, written by me ah. uh, in 2009 that explains exactly how the iPlayer encodes all of its stuff. I don't want to be that guy that talks constantly about trials and stuff, but I had the, because I, I worked at the BBC at the time, I was on what it was called IMP then, uh, in Internet Media Player or I don't know, something like that, or, you know, and it was the beta test of iPlayer uh, before they launched it. So, um, and, and they used to do, you know, all sorts of testing on that and it was quite bad really i mean it was it was clever but and this is back in very early broadband days but it's amazing to see how far it's come and it is i mean i don't think you'd find a better service anywhere in the world podcast at natelangson.com let us know your thoughts to paying for the i player the i payer <laughs> are you going to be an i payer podcast at natelangson.com
It's time, Ian, to talk about that favourite of all of our subjects. How much money does vinyl make versus ad-supported music streaming services? Uh. Indeed, <laughs> but some good news uh, is that um, uh, on the 20th of May, the British phonographic industry published something called the Music Market 2016 Guide. Now, I, I looked at this with my... Um, with my my balls of eye uh, and my mind on high alert and i noticed something very interesting mostly because they'd written it in the first paragraph one in six albums sold worldwide in 2015 were from british artists notable british artists have been let's say propelling the uk's music industry to uh, allegedly new peaks obviously that's adele Ed Sheeran, Sam Smith, uh, and much more interesting acts, British acts like Cradle of Filth, Napalm Death, and Dragon Force. I didn't realise Cradle of Filth were British, actually, Nate. That's very interesting to me. Mm. However, according to this report, there was an 88% rise in music video streaming, so YouTube, basically, in 2015 over the prior year. Now, that brings the total amount of money that all the streams all the streams in britain for music on youtube came to 24 million pounds now uh, 24.4 actually now let's be more specific here um in the uk a fifth this is again according to this bpi report a fifth of all music consumption in britain now comes from video streaming services youtube no subscription fee that's 20 percent of all music consumption but it brought in only 24 million pounds of the UK's £688 million annual music business. Uh, Paid-for services like Spotify and Deezer, they're up about 80-odd percent year-on-year, and they contribute £146 million annually to the music business in the UK. Now, those numbers are all generally, I think, reasonably, uh, well, good on the side of uh, streaming services that you pay for, bringing in a lot more money, but worrying, and I and I can say, I think, fairly worrying, um, that YouTube counts for 20% of all music consumed, but brings in 0.4%, uh, or rather brings in uh, 24 million pounds a year. Um, but vinyl sales are now at the highest they've been since 1995. Um, they're, they've reached this new peak, which means that the industry made more money from vinyl in 2015 than all free video ser- music streaming services like YouTube combined despite the fact that the latter accounts for 20% of all music consumption. So what you're saying is that there's more money in things people pay for than things that they don't pay for. Interesting. But I think there's some nuances behind this, because yes, we have seen the rise in vinyl for good reason. People who stream music all the time maybe need to feel an ownership over something, but... Not for good reason, for hipster reasons. I, I still buy CDs. Yes, but that's completely different. That is completely different. That's a quality <laughs> issue. It's a quality and convenience ratio issue, yes. But you are in the demographic, as am I, I suppose, uh, where older people buy vinyl because they have money and they're used to paying for music and they're now buying more of it. And yet in the younger generation, they've never paid for anything and don't see the need to. And they're getting more numerous as they get older. And they've only ever been used to streaming music for free because they were born around the same time Napster was born. And there's now quite a lot of them online. And so they are accounting for a hell of a lot more music. But it's only the older generations actually paying anything. So how do we get kids to pay money for music, Ian? Tell me this answer, because the industry would like to know. Um, you don't. 
Oh. Quite simply, you, you you won't make money out of kids or young people. And then when they get older, they'll start to do what I do, which is think I've got money. I, you know, I, I, I earn a living. I'm going to spend some of it on music or I'm going to subscribe to Spotify. I mean, I have subscriptions to Netflix and Spotify and I buy uh, lossless downloads and, you know, high resolution audio and stuff like that. Um, I don't do a huge amount of it, but I'm I'm paying regularly every month. Uh, and I wasn't previously wasn't buying any CDs at all. You know, if I was listening to music, I don't know, maybe I'd, you know, I might snaffle a torrent back in the day if I was if it was something I wanted to listen to. Um, but honestly, for me, I, you know, I, 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 there's enough music around. I do listen to music on YouTube sometimes, um, and I also sit through the damn ads. So uh, the fact that the music industry isn't earning money from it isn't anything to do with people who are listening. There is a monetization plan there. It's just that the deal they did with YouTube isn't sufficient. And that's what this comes down to. The music industry is grousing at the moment and talking about wanting to do a better deal with YouTube where it gets more money for video streams. And that's absolutely fine. So it's basically the music industry has the world's worst hangover. It made a really, really bad decision the night before. And now it's literally not being paid for that. And it, you know, and it, and there's never going to be a huge amount of money in streaming on YouTube, but they do have the option to not do it. It isn't mandatory. They can mm. stop it. In fact, music is really easy to stop because it's one of the things that YouTube does. I mean, you know, it's. I think most of uh, content ideas done from sound. Uh, I, I mean, obviously there is a video aspect of it as well, but it's certainly content ID is very good at finding copyrighted music in videos and you will if you've if you've dealt with youtube you will have seen copyright flagging plenty of times because of you know you've maybe accidentally included a clip or something or you've done it deliberately and you know and that's all fine so you know music industry if you don't want your music on youtube you know where the button is and it's your choice as with all technological advances they generally tend to be a conduit to something that ultimately people pay for we've seen that time and time again the music industry has a way of saying something is terrible and it's going to crush you. And then ultimately it turns out it was the best thing that they ever could have um, have happened. Yeah. Because, for example, they make more money from back catalogue stuff now. You know, that's a yeah. fact. Because I can find, I could download a, any song recorded in the last, you know, probably 75 years, can't I? Uh, I could go on any one of the paid services and have a, a song in seconds. Let us know your thoughts as ever. Podcast at Nate Langston, uh, Com. Do you think YouTube is a plague on the houses of the British music industry and indeed the global music industry? Podcast at NateLangston.com. Fire your thoughts into that bullseye. Well, now let's check in with Tom Merritt, who's going to give us a look at the wider week in tech that we've missed by not doing a podcast this week. Tom. Hey, thanks, Nate. This week we've been talking about France's law, which would ban email after work hours. Turns out there are some important jobs like doctors and sysadmins that don't like the idea so much. Plus, the law specifies no penalties for breaking it. We also asked people in Pittsburgh why they think their city in particular is good for testing self-driving cars. Uber's testing them there. Uh, turns out that winter, crazy pedestrians, and streets with steps built into the middle of them are some of the reasons the residents of Steeltown gave us that more coming on DailyTechNewsShow.com. Back to you. A couple of very quick things I wanted to get to, and, and I do mean very quick here, a minute or so. The uh, Android Pay system launched in the UK 
Unless you're in bar- with Barclays Bank, which I believe Ian might be. I am, but also I tried to put my NatWest and Amex cards on and neither worked. Okay, so good start <laughs> for Android Pay. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a joke, mate. Just That's what I've just... Apple Pay, because it works. Unless you have an Android phone, in which case, good luck. Well, no. I mean, I, I, well, I've said before, haven't I? I want Apple Pay on Android phones. I think that would be brilliant. Mm. Well, um, I'm curious to get people's opinions on this, if they've been using Android Pay, because we're in this weird world now. We've got regular contactless. We've got Apple Pay. We've got Samsung Pay, for crying out loud. Um, and now we've got Apple Pay. Which are you using, people? Please tell us. And why did you choose the one that you chose? Um, I'm very curious because I only have an Apple phone that's connected to my bank card. And so I use my iPhone for for payments and I use it daily. Um, But I want to know why if someone has maybe two phones, maybe they have a phone that is Samsung that they can now use Android Pay on, which one are you using? Because it's probably very hard to have it tied to multiple because banks don't tend to like that kind of thing. Uh, podcast at natelangson.com or tweeters at text message pod. Um, very curious to know which of you have chosen which service. And the other quick thing I wanted to get to, a little bit of a sad thing, um, but I have a public service announcement here that I just wanted to get out there. Post Office Mobile Mobile offered by the post office, uh, which launched less than a year ago. In fact, it launched 11 months ago by my research. Uh, it's closing down. <laughs> it's closing down. And it's it's a shame because, they, you know, I saw a couple of snarky write-ups saying that this was mobile services for, you know, the grey-haired because it was very easy when you're walking into a shop to get your pension um, to see the adverts for very, very cheap sign-up via text uh not even contracts just offers for mobile service um to put in an old phone you know they they were doing bundles from five pounds a month you've got 200 meg of data 250 uk minutes 300 texts it lasts for 30 days but anyway it's they're closing it down after a year so obviously it wasn't very popular but the reason i particularly wanted to mention it is that um i was going through their um their sort of q and a's when considering this story and i noticed a line in their q and a that says Unfortunately, we will not be able to provide a pack code after the 4th of August 2016. Therefore, you will lose your mobile number if you have not contacted a new provider and given them your pack by this date. So if you're with Post Office Mobile and you know that it's, maybe you didn't, but you now do, know that it's closing, make sure you move that contract sooner rather than later because after the 4th of August, even if you do try, you will fail and you will lose your phone number. So wanted to throw that out there sorry um it was obviously a second class oh. service um and it's just gone in a jiffy oh night enough that is that's a double whammy of horror indeed well i'm secretly quite impressed thank you very much mate um that was not even planned <laughs> it just, no, it I, just, i'm looking it, at the script i can tell it wasn't in there <laughs> indeed um anyway that's all the news for this week but one email i wanted to get to here in um yeah it's it it gives me wet eyes <laughs> when i saw this because if you remember a few weeks ago i invited comments feedback i invited hate i specifically said we'll even welcome your hate mail or words to that effect now we've had an email here from alistair dear mr langson and mr morris I'm writing to rant about something that you said that has upset me. What you said was very reasonable and very well argued, but for some reason I have decided to take exception to it. 
and feel the need to write something mean to you and criticize your goodwill and hard work creating a podcast every week for thousands to enjoy. Now, this thing you said, I have no idea what it is. Alistair continues, you invited hate messages and I didn't want to disappoint you. So here it is. I just don't know how to how they go when you actually enjoy the work of someone else. So I'll just be mean spirited. Your socks sound like they don't match. Ah, uh, now you see, he's hit me right in the hurt there because I can tell you for a fact that I could never wear unmatching socks. It is one of those things that you know, you know how everyone has things that they are, you know, really very sensitive about. Yeah. I, that's me. Can't can't bear unmatching socks. Will not. How have we been friends for like ten years? I've never worn a matching pair of socks in my life. I'm not even wearing socks right now. Well, I mean that's different. I mean not wearing socks is quite another matter. That's fine. But uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, the, the other thing I can't do is you know you know the worm, the sock worm. Um, no. it, well, you know it, socks have a, a, a where where they're stitched at the toe. They have a little a worm. That oh runs yes, along. they do. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Well, that's what I call it. Um, and I can't have the sock worm facing out. Uh, that's just not acceptable to me. I'm very pleased for you you've, as a friend. You've that... delved right into my consciousness here. You see, this is what I mean. That's such an effective piece of hate mail because it's struck right at the very core of who I am. I can tell you're, you have an ache deep in the feelings. I do. Um, anyway, Alistair continues. I actually wanted to take the opportunity to give you some feedback. I'm an Apple fan and love the coverage that you give Apple stuff. And I also like that you give equal coverage and praise to Samsung and Android devices. Having never used one, I always find them fascinating. My more specific feedback, though, is that I really enjoyed Ian geeking out on processes. I don't know about most of your audience, how most of your audience feel about the nitty-gritty specs of RAM and processes, but I really enjoy them and would also love to hear you go into more depth about them. But I realise I may not be representative. Just thought it was worth letting you know. Well, Ian uh, well, and I love nerding out on, we on do. RAM and, um, and if And if, if there's a general feeling that, you know, it would be interesting to hear about processes, there is so much to talk about that is interesting. I mean, I you know, I'm not one of these people that thinks that just because something's geeky that it can't be interesting to a mass audience. I mean, that's sort of our job, isn't it? We, you know, we, we under, we've, we've been told this stuff and it's our responsibility to sort of explain it in a way that is interesting and uh, relevant rather than just raw numbers and, you know... Processors at the moment in phones are phenomenal. They are, yes, <laughs> indeed. So if we, if people want to hear about it, we'll go and um, we'll go and interview someone from Qualcomm, and they'll they'll change your world. Well, thank you for the feedback, Alistair. Fun and also fair. We will consider geeking out a little bit more, but we try and keep things you know generally accessible. A, a deep focus on the UK, and you know a lot of people in the UK don't really care about RAM. Um, farmers care about rams um, <laughs> the male sheep of course um but it's a different issue and to go deep into a ram in that context is just it's just messy <laughs> but that's going to do it for this week everybody thanks for listening uh, at text message pod is where we welcome your short form feedback and podcast at natelangson.com is where your long form feedback hate comments requests Anything else you wish, send it there. And Ian and I will see you in a week. Yay!